If you looked at Music Aviva as a diagram, there'd be three equal components. There would be our emerging artist program, there would be our education programs in schools for younger children, and then the main stage concerts where we really do celebrate international brilliance and Australian brilliance. My name is Howell Sims, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Musica Viva Australia. This is Mission Megaphone, a Growth Network podcast production. We're on a mission to be a megaphone for purpose-driven organizations that are changing the world. I think it's uh, important to know that Musica Viva was started by Jewish refugees in the 1940s who had escaped Vienna and the Anschluss and like so many Jewish people ended up in, you know, all over the world. And in most of those places, they started arts organizations or they started performing or they started funding the arts. The founding generation naturally brought their children and their grandchildren to concerts. And I know from talking to a lot of both the founding generation and their children and their grandchildren that in most cases that kind of worked. Coming to concerts is not only an opportunity to hear the music they've learned to love, but it's a way of honoring the tradition. So we've got this long history of bringing music, live music importantly, to this country. And for about the last 40 years, we've been the major provider of music education in schools in Australia. So we're all about bringing music to life for communities around the country. It's becoming practice here to, whenever you present a public event or launch a website, that you would acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands. Australia, as you would know, was colonized by white people about 200 and some years ago. And at that point, as far as we know, the country was divided into literally hundreds of what we call countries now. Each had its own language, or most of them did. And their life was governed, as would be typical, by ceremony and careful conversations and discussions and debates between the countries to allow them to survive together successfully. We also know that traditional owners learned over the 60,000 or so years we think people have been here to take care of the land. So we do it at the beginning of every live performance, for example. I would start by acknowledging that I'm on Gadigal land, which is the name of the peoples who populated the land I'm actually on at the moment. And I would say Budyeri Kamaru, which is welcome in Gadigal. So Gadigal is one of the languages we have some elements left of. The majority of them have been lost because people were taken from their lands and, and prevented from speaking the language. The debate about what chamber music is, is a very um, lively one. And our artistic director, who's been with us several years now, is determined to change the way we think of that term. In our schools programs in Australia, we have 14 musical ensembles that tour the country, and they perform in a very wide range of genres from um, a wonderful taiko drumming group who have interpreted drumming for curriculum and lessons in schools. We've got two First Nations ensembles we've developed in conjunction with people from those countries. 
one in particular called Wainis, which comes from the islands off the coast of Australia or some of the islands, they actually perform in language rather than in English and then translate from language into English. So the school children understand what's going on. And the kids who see our shows have been through a year of curriculum preparation. So when the artists arrive, it's like rock stars arriving in the school. It's fantastic. And so Wainis performs dances from their country, speaks in language, talks about some of the gestures they're using and the dances they're doing. And that's just one of a range of about 10 or 15 different um, styles of music from as many cultures that we perform around the country. So we perform anything up to 2,500 concerts every year when we can. And most of those would be in a, a wide variety of musical styles that the more traditional would not think of as chamber music. In the pandemic, we all discovered that live music is unique that the live experience can't be replicated. The full experience of sitting in an audience or a room or a hall with live musicians, you can't recreate that digitally. You can do other things digitally. You can create new work that's um, designed specifically for the digital medium, but to point cameras in a room at artists and perhaps an audience, if you're lucky to have one, and hope that that will have the same emotional impact is largely impossible. So it's been reaffirmed for us and for artists actually that for them performing in a live setting is unique as well and it, it takes the connection between artists and audience to make the, the event. It's not either or, it's both. The two groups that I'm most worried about with COVID are artists themselves, musicians in our case, but artists who've largely not been eligible for government support of any kind the other group is uh, school children, not least because kids need to go to school to get fed in a lot of cases. So I, I, we're worried about the impact of the loss of a year and a half, two years of education generally, but equally then worried about the loss of two years of music in children's lives, in all of our lives, because music does connect, does heal, does inspire. And we've not been able to do any of that. And, and it's showing, I think there's an absence of joy really in people's lives that the arts are there to instill. For us, it's been an affirmation that our focus on live music will be what we continue with. The pandemic made some of our audience members who might have been a little unsure about digital become much more savvy themselves. There's been a, I think a change of opinion about what digital can do, even though we still believe that live is unique. There's a sign that people will be more willing to accept digital as an alternative. The issue of access is very big because Australia is a very big country and most of the population lives in the bottom right-hand corner, but there are people scattered across Australia. We can and do send musical ensembles out to remote and regional areas, sometimes for audiences of 30 children who've all trucked in from different cattle stations around their area to listen to live music because they don't get to, to hear it otherwise. But certainly one of the things that digital is doing and will do is allow artists more access and people who have access difficulties who can't for one reason or another get to a traditional performance 
will now have access, do now have access to music. So that's a really quite significant change in the lives of people for whom accessibility is an issue. In terms of longer term goals, I'd like every child in Australia to have access to quality music education in school, and most don't. We're part of an international reference group for music education. And in every country, even the ones that have better funding for education and for music than we do, there is anxiety that the increasing pressure to test for science and math subjects is making teachers and schools and principals and systems and budgets that are already under enormous pressure feel even more pressured and the the tendency the temptation is always to say i haven't got time for can't quite do that can't quite afford the music lesson the drama lesson the 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 dance lessons we'll do them later and later never comes and kids who have access to the arts music particularly but other arts too live fuller lives we know them to be more successful academically particularly if they learn an instrument it's wrong for children who haven't got the benefit of coming from wealth or privilege of some kind or are unable to access good facilities. They have every right, as anybody else does, to have music in their lives. The long-term goal is to convince our friends in government and our friends in funding bodies that music is every bit as essential as anything else that a child will learn. There's a new First Nations Indigenous school that's opened in part of the country. And I, I went to visit not long ago and the, it's wonderful. They say that the arts are the spine of the school. They are essential and that reflects First Nations philosophies. We've commodified everything, but in First Nations communities to dance and to, in some cases, sing and certainly to make markings of some kind is a way of demonstrating that you're alive. You, you can't separate them. I'd most like to see that every child attends a school that has arts as its spine, because that would make the country and the individual so much richer. It's a pressing question for any organization that represents what we might see as high art or traditional, all kinds of words are used to, to describe art forms that are increasingly seen as the domain of a certain part of society. To be fair, the people who started Music Aviva were chamber musicians. But they weren't chamber musicians because they thought that was the, the clever or the posh thing to do. They were chamber musicians because from the earliest age, that music, the music of Haydn and Beethoven and go on with the list of that set of composers, it had been all around them. So that's that one part of the community that we feel a strong responsibility to because they are why we're here, actually. For them, it was the stuff of life. It wasn't for a particular group of people or seen in a particularly elite way. It was the music that they loved. I would say we still do that. We take that view. We try and make our music as accessible as we can in terms of price, in terms of location of performance around Australia. We could do much more and we will do much more about that in the coming years. The audience of Music Aviva's main stage concerts 
is changing and it's reflective of the country. Until recently, the majority of new immigrants to Australia would still have come from, largely speaking, the Northern European area. But for the first time, not many years ago, the number of new immigrants from China exceeded the number of immigrants from any other country. So the modern face of Australia, faces of Australia, has changed and will change even more. And all of that's an opportunity. We certainly don't think we should keep on doing what we do in a certain way at a certain time in a certain place. So then comes the job of making sure that the way we present ourselves, the way we talk about ourselves, the places we perform in, the prices we charge, the insistence that the people on our stages reflect the modern face of Australia and the world. Not all of that now is what we're working on. And that will take some time to affect the change, but we've got enough pure belief in the music, eliteness of quality and excellence of performance, but not elite in keeping the doors closed. We present an international chamber music competition every four years when we can. And in the middle of that competition, where 50 or so people from all over the world come to perform in ensembles to win a prizes. There's a free day of performance. The competition is based in Melbourne, which is one of the other largest cities in Australia. And this free performance happens in shopping malls, in, in, in anywhere. There was a trio who had not been successful in getting through to the finals. So they offered to play in, as part of this live free event. And it was in the middle of a, a public square. It's got a roof on it, but it's public square in the middle of Melbourne. And they were to play a piece by Shostakovich, you know, not the sort of easily hummable music that might get people interested, but Shostakovich. So they started playing and there were the diehard, I love them, the diehard chamber music types. They brought their own chairs. There were about 40 people who just brilliant supporters. The piece lasted, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. What happened, I was watching from a balcony above, was that people passing by would kind of stop and then they'd stay. So that by the end of the 20 minutes, there were easily 300 people all standing around with their kids in strollers and their dogs and their, you know, whatever they were going about their business of the day as people used to do. And they were transfixed. So when I hear concerns about music being difficult to access, I simply don't accept them. I think music and dance and painting and all the many other art forms, they're there for us to make of what we will. The artists are not there to create exclusion. They're there to bring us in or to make us think about the world. There's something in Australia called the cultural cringe. The country when it uses that term, essentially what people are talking about is the constant sense of being less than European countries. In the arts in particular, that can be interpreted to suggest that to be successful, an artist of any kind has to leave and go overseas to train or to live or to practice. And to some degree, of course, art has no boundaries. And the more that we travel and experience new circumstances, the richer our art becomes. So there is some truth in that, but it's not fair 
um, to extrapolate from that, the idea that you have to leave to develop your skills and your abilities as an artist. I always think it's very ironic that I, this Welsh-Californian hybrid, should be saying how important it is that Australians should be <laughs> believing that what we produce here is every bit as brilliant. We both accept that, celebrate that, and invest in those musicians or composers, and increasingly some writers who are clearly on a path to becoming the country's next artistic leaders, the world's next artistic leaders. We're lucky to have foundations support this two-year bespoke program for people we really believe will be uh, world-leading in their futures. That program's been running about six years now, and we're already beginning to see for the earlier alumni evidence of international excellence. We also provide masterclasses, bringing artists from around the world to Australia, because that's part of our mission. But we do that in part so that they can spend time with local musicians who might not yet have had the chance to study in a variety of different countries. So we create that exchange. We also have an annual high school chamber music competition called Strike a Chord, in which about 500 students from around the country from high schools apply to compete. There are kids from every state. And the job of all those elements is to strengthen the music world in Australia, the ensemble music world in particular, and the whole planet. With cultural cringe, the, the job here is to kill that stone dead because it's simply not true. For Music Aviva, we think that music can change the world. But it'll take us all to support music education in your community, wherever that is. Go visit musicaviva.com.au and take a look at what we do. And if you'd like to support us, great. But particularly get involved in music and ensuring that children have access to music wherever they are. We spend a lot of time talking to our government representatives. The interesting thing about education and government is that trends and disciplines and opinions change as governments change. And though it's important for government to support the arts in general, because how else do you measure a society other than by what its artists provide and create? Though it's important to do that, I think we need to strengthen and ensure that the base, the structure for music education transcends governments or parties or terms of a parliament or a congress. So it's educating people in government uh, about how music brings us together. The COVID pandemic has driven us apart. It's hunkered us down. Music helps us emerge again. So I think government certainly has an interest and a role in helping us build community stronger. One of the other ways in which we can ensure that the future of music is to ensure the future of musicians and of teachers. Teachers survive longer than administrations. So I think the more we can 
help institutions that train teachers to teach music is a way in which music will continue. Of the 2,500 or so events we produce every year, the majority are in schools. They're not typically performances up on a stage somewhere with children kept at a safe distance and, and told to be very quiet. In fact, our work, our curriculum is designed to, to maximize the amount of involvement by the students. We hear often of people who remember Music of Viva musicians coming to their school. So both uh, from our musicians now and from audience members, we often hear the story that the first time they saw somebody play a musical instrument live was when Music of Viva came to their school. And so I guess most of what we do, even now, and more and more of what we do in our main stage work will be to encourage the breaking down where that's possible of the fourth wall. I want to give a shout out to every single musician because there's nothing in our society that supports somebody when they pick up an instrument or when they discover their voice and they think they want to use that skill to make that music. Everything works against that. School systems often do, unless you're lucky to be in a school that has a wonderful music department. The parental voice or the guardian's voice will often be saying, are you sure? So I think musicians are absolutely extraordinary in the way that they relentlessly hold to this belief that they're in the world to make music and they have no choice. Actually, the artist has no choice but to make their art. I celebrate every single musician who perseveres and makes our world different. You've been listening to Mission Megaphone, a Growth Network podcast's production. Follow this podcast for more incredible stories from purpose-driven organizations and individuals you'll want to meet. To learn more about this show or Music Aviva, please check out our show notes. I'm Linz Florin. Our producers are Sari Wienerman and Jeffrey Morris. Production manager is Maura Murphy Barras. Original music by Nicholas Fournier. Promotional support from Marsha Orr. Website by Nick Brodnicki. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again, keep searching for inspiration. And when you find it, make sure to pass it on. If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter.